Northern Seminary and the Center for Theological Integrity. This is the pastor's table. Today's church leaders are weary and burnt out from trying to lead in the machine of corporate leadership systems. The pastor's table brings you conversations with local pastors working out deep theological convictions in their churches. Here are your hosts, Reverend Tara Beth Leach and Dr. Mark Quanstrom. Welcome to the pastor's table. I am Tara Beth Leach. And I am Mark Quanstrom, and it is our privilege to have Dr. Beth Felker-Jones with us again today. And we are going to continue our conversation about incarnation, as we've been talking about that. But before we get there, Beth Felker-Jones's recent re-edited book, Practicing Christian Doctrine, as I mentioned the first time she was on the podcast, is just a, a wonderful book. And I thought we ought to start by asking our theologian in residence, mm-hmm. uh, what is the relationship between practice and doctrine? It's such a big question and maybe my favorite one. Oh, glad to be back with you all. The title for the book, Practicing Christian Doctrine, sort of works two ways. It's an intro to doctrine that is Christian teaching a textbook. And so part of the practice is just to learn the content, to learn the vocab, right? To do the things that one probably normally thinks of doing in an introduction to theology kind of setting. But then it also flips over into the idea that doctrine is something that we practice in our daily lives, in discipleship, in church community, in ministry, um, in every way that doctrine should shape our practice. And that faithful practice should also shape our doctrine, right? And bad doctrine can deform practice, and bad practice can deform doctrine. That also works both ways. We're embodied wholes. Doctrine is not just something you think through. It's a way of life. One contemporary kind of metaphor for it in theology is a language that you learn, right? And a language, too, isn't just something you know. It's something you live and think through and so on. So... So you said theo- good, bad theology can deform practice and bad practice can deform theology. You, you just said that just a minute ago. My hunch is that we typically think that practice flows from theological confessions. Mm-hmm. I, I think I think that that's how we operate, that we have this understanding of theology cognitively and that practice necessarily or inevitably flows from our thought theology. We do talk as though that's the way it works. Yeah. And so what's most important is to think correctly. But as a pastor for 36 years, and Tara Beth can confirm this and would concur, I'm I'm thinking it is more likely that our practice is what is theologically formative, not not our theology is not formed necessarily or primarily by our read theology or cognitively confessed theology. I'm thinking that how we practice is really what determines what we believe. I, mean, that's I think an, that's so yeah, very true. Oh. Those these are rich statements and really powerful statements. And I often joke with Beth and Mark that I am sometimes intimidated sitting around the two of you. And, you know, this is this is such rich conversation. And so I think just naming that, you know, for our pastors that are listening in, you think, wow, like this is really, really rich and this is really good. And also we're talking about this because we think that so much is at stake in the ways that we are practicing our theology. And I wonder if you guys could even just break that down, you know, for, for pastors like me, 
who love a good theology conversation and love thinking deeply about these things. But, you know, I'm curious if we could like how what is the impact? Like, let's let's let the rubber meet the road a little bit. Like, what does that look like? This this impact of of practice shaping theology and theology shaping practice. So let me let's, let me answer by a practice that I continue to commit to, which is home visitation on the part of the senior pastor. Mm-hmm. It's not done that much these days for all kinds of reasons. There's all kind of personal incentives not to do it. There's disincentives to doing doing it. It's costly, and our culture teaches us to think that people are not receptive. But I, it's an ancient practice, and I've refused to not do it. Mm-hmm. So I teach my students to and to to make that a part of their pastoral practice visiting with your people the in hospital, their homes in their homes in the hospital in nursing homes visit with their people right wow the argument i use on my students who have not seen pastors do this is the is a theological one what are our people learning about the presence of God, if the pastor who is the spokesperson for God is never present to our people's lives. Mm, absolutely. And that's a practice that assumes some really good basic Christian things, that that bodies matter, that place matters, mm. that the sort of mundane details of our daily lives matter, and that to enter into that with somebody else is an act that creates a kind of intimacy that that can't happen otherwise. It's sad that it's a fading practice. Um, It is. I don't know many pastors that still do that. Well, it's kind of controversial when I teach it because they've never, a lot lot haven't witnessed it. Mm -hmm. And when you're pastoring larger churches, it becomes a matter of, you know, of fairness and justice. You're visiting some of the people and not Mm -hmm. all the people. So maybe you shouldn't visit any of them so Mm -hmm. that it's all fair. But it is my understanding of the person of Jesus Christ who made time for persons that drives me to insist on me doing it. Wow. And, and so if we have a pastor who never connects to their people outside the pulpit, that is a particular revelation of the God this pastor is representing. Hmm. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so you, you wanted an illustration of how practice forms theology. I believe that the people who are visited by the senior pastor, who really does not have time to do this, have an easier time believing that their Lord is present with them because their pastor was, they would be more inclined to think that God is present and not distant. They're always surprised, obviously, and maybe not obviously, but they're always surprised. But it is my desire to reveal a God who is present that drives me to do this, Mm -hmm. I mean, as often as I can. Mm That totally fits with the representative nature of pastoral ministry, right? You're not just yourself, but you represent the church and to some extent God, right? And so when you when you step into people's lives in that way, it signals to a lot that is beyond you. And that representativeness is also a way to talk about what it means that Jesus comes among us, mm-hmm. right? He is able to represent us, right, to re present 
us to the Father precisely because he's been where we've been, right? Mm -hmm. And so we know from Jesus the Father's care and love for us, the Father's intimate presence to us in a way that we wouldn't have known had he not come to our homes, right? Come to our homes and pitched a tent right here with us, eating dinner with us. Yeah. The other, the other way I would illustrate it, the other way I'd illustrate it would be the nature of salvation itself. Um, if we have an aggregation of individuals in an auditorium listening to a proclaimed message in which they can personally, individually appropriate cognitively, and that is the extent of their participation in the life of the church, then that is a specific way of understanding salvation. It is a way of understanding salvation is perhaps primarily propositional. This is proclamation, believe this, and you are saved. And it leaves out so much of the formative nature of Christianity, yeah. mm -hmm. the discipleship aspect. Wow. Mm -hmm. But the church has been modeling this kind of proclamation gospel, which presents a very specific understanding of salvation as cognitive or intellectual appropriation. Does that make sense? It does so make sense. I, I'm, it does. I am saved because of what I believe, not by how I live. Mm -hmm. Indeed, yeah. I begin every theology class, the beginning of a term, by reminding students that it's not what we believe that saves us, it's Jesus yeah. who saves us. And someone always fights me on it. <laughs> Yeah. No, but you really have to believe the, yeah. the right things. Yeah. And that can get us into all kinds of trouble, including kind of agonies about whether we're getting it right, right? Salvation mm -hmm. by belief is a form of works righteousness you know, instead of trust in, in the person of, of Jesus. Yeah. If Jesus is Lord, how then should we live? How Indeed. then should we be practicing our faith? How then should yeah. we walk in the presence of the Spirit? Another really classic place where theology connects doctrine to practice, right, is in the practice of prayer. There's a sort of famous moment where Basil the Great is defending the divinity of the Holy Spirit against people who would say the Spirit is not God. He argues that our, our prayer practice can and should fit with that, right? Basically that you can end a prayer not just in the name of the Father, but in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, something we still do. We could do it more, but it's, we still do it, right? And so he's, he's arguing that the Spirit's person as God fits with that way of, of praying. Sarah Coakley, a contemporary theologian, argues that we really came to understood the doc understand the doctrine of the Trinity itself, not in the kind of cognitive way that we usually tell the story, but through the experience of praying in the Spirit, where we understood that the Spirit is God at work amongst us in ways that we, we hadn't known before, and that led us then to understand something about the nature of the triune God. Some years ago, I wrote a book about the Spirit. I accepted an assignment. I hadn't studied that doctrine very much, and so I, I had to do a lot of reading to to write it. And uh, that experience just of writing that book yes. awakened in me a whole new way of praying as I came to understand and just to read about the experiences of other Christians, even, that the Spirit is really with us, right? The Spirit is not a magic force who zaps us. The Spirit is in personal relationship with us. And so we're free to invite the Spirit to, into our, our prayer life. So it would be in the way we pray that we really begin to appreciate Trinity. Mm -hmm. I think that's right. I think that's right. And it starts 
on Coakley's argument, and I'm fairly convinced, it starts with the spirit, right? Even though we usually start the conversation with the father, you can start the conversation with father, son, or spirit. It's fine, but it's the spirit's presence in our lives as we pray, right? Praying for us when we don't know what to that that really gets us there. So the link between practice and doctrine is not one is not is not one way. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Obviously, theology forms should be forming our practices, and that's kind of the point of this podcast. How do our theological convictions inform practice? But it's premised on the reality that practice is forming theology. So the reason that our theology must form practice is because our practices is what forms us theologically. I think that's right. And it's my deepest hope that we recognize that good practice is good for good theology and good theology is good for good practice. And I think a lot of us are hungry for both. Yeah. So if I could respond to your reference to understanding the Trinity in light of our prayer life. I have a, my hunch is, conviction, I keep using those two, I'm not sure which it is. My, my conviction is that nothing is more revealing of our relationship with our Lord and our understanding of salvation. Nothing is more revealing than our prayer life. I think there's a lot of truth in that. That Americans are inclined to a works righteousness or a Pelagianism, and nothing reveals it more than how often we pray mm-hmm. or how well we pray or how devoted we are to our prayer, praying. If it's to be, it's up to me is kind of the American mantra. But prayer mandates that we believe that this really is God's work at the end, that 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 we are not empowered by ourselves to do this work and that this is the Lord's work. And so that's why I say that the prayer life is probably the most revealing aspect of our own faith. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, and I'm really intrigued and I'm wondering if we could sit on this for a little bit, because I think there's, there's a lot here. I've quoted before Gordon D. Fee, who is, I think is just one of the greatest scholars on, on the Holy Spirit. And I believe in a recent episode, we talked about how, you know, he helps us embrace the Holy Spirit as the early church did, that Mm -hmm. the Holy Spirit wasn't a mere idea, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. but an experienced reality, Mm -hmm. that it was a very real experienced Mm -hmm. reality. Mm -hmm. And, you know, Beth, you shared a little bit about an experience Mm -hmm. that you had in, in, coming to, I guess, terms or realizing the experience of the Holy Spirit. Could you flesh that out a little bit more for us? Yeah, I'd I'd love to. I think the Spirit is an experienced reality and more an experienced personal Mm. reality. That language of talking about God as personal is a little bit out of favor because we worry that it's very individualistic and so on and so forth. But it really is the heart of the doctrine of the Trinity, right? God is three persons in personal relationship with one another and with us. So my experience was, I think I had thought about Jesus and the Father as personal, and so in many ways about their relational, their relationship with me, right? But I had tended, like I think a lot of us do, to think of the Spirit more as a sub-personal reality, as a force field, right? As something more like Star Wars than like, Mm-hmm. A friend. And as I was studying the doctrine of spirit and really thinking about what it means that the spirit is truly God, truly in eternal personal relationship with the Father and the Son, and the person of the triune God who most, in some ways, enters into personal relationship with us, right? Indwelling 
our very persons and praying with us, it it changed my prayer life mm-hmm. in a really dramatic way. Mm-hmm. When I was thinking about the spirit as a force, I thought, I think, that for the spirit to be real, the spirit would have to sort of zap me, that I shouldn't have anything to do with it, right? Because otherwise I'd be making it up in the spirit. The spirit needed to work from outside me without me. But once you realize that the spirit is personal and that that's not how loving persons work, mm-hmm. then you're invited to think about the spirit as actually working in you and with you. And so I was able to trust the Spirit's presence and power in my life in a whole new way because to some extent I stopped saying, I'm making this up, aren't I? Because the Spirit's a force field. <laughs> and I was learning to embrace the Spirit as, as a personal reality. And I think we make this mistake about the Spirit a lot. Right? I hear people say, it couldn't be the Spirit because I wanted it, or it couldn't be the Spirit because my emotions were high. But, but no, the Spirit loves us as embodied persons who have desires and emotions and experiences. And there's no reason the Spirit wouldn't work personally with our desires and experiences and emotions. That doesn't mean we don't need discernment. We, we do. Mm-hmm. But I think it invites a kind of trust that we're, we're often wary of. So it is the Spirit who is praying within us, which is what Paul says in Romans chapter 8. Absolutely. And that's the anti-works righteousness bit, right? I'm not doing this. The Spirit is. But then the personal bit. And I'm also doing this, right? Because I'm in actual, vital, personal relationship with the personal Spirit who is God. So it is the Spirit, which Jesus promised us, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Which Jesus said we could know, right? That the world could not know, but that they would know because of him. Mm -hmm. It, this, this is a, a level of intimacy with God, the father, son, and spirit because of the spirit. Yes. That word intimacy, I think is really good there. Yeah. So the spirit's not zapping us from a distance. The spirit is entering into the most innermost parts of our lives Mm -hmm. so that sometimes when we're praying, we can not be sure if it's coming from us or coming from the Spirit. And we don't need to be sure, right, necessarily. Because it is the Spirit working in us. I think that's right. And I just want to name that, you know, the two of you, I mean, just hearing that has reclaimed something within me that I think as a practitioner, a theological practitioner, I've observed there's been a bit of a pendulum swing in this conversation on personal relationship and intimacy. Mm -hmm. And, you know, maybe for good reason, but I think we've swung the pendulum so far that we are so afraid to talk about God as personal, God as Mm -hmm. intimate. Amen, sister. Yeah. And Jesus is our friend. Yeah. The spirit indwells our bodies. That that's. Yeah, I mean, and that is that is, I think, such an important reclaiming mm-hmm. that we've we've got to be able to lean towards because we've been so afraid to talk about it. And you know, and part of it is is it's it's in a rea- it's a reaction. It is against hyper individualization. Yep, yep, yep. It's a reaction about focusing on my Christian life as an individual, and it's me and Jesus, mm-hmm. and you know, 
the corporate church doesn't matter. I don't need it. And so, you know, that that pendulum swing is for really good reason. But at the same time, what this conversation is doing within me, and I hope others that are listening, is is that we can hold that tension. Yes, yes. That we can hold the tension between being a covenant community and what it means to be a holy people of God and also reclaiming and remembering and embracing and surrendering and opening ourselves up to this incredible reality, to this incredible truth that God is personal. Absolutely. So often I think as Christians, we we want to get pendulums stuck on one side, yes. right? Yeah. So here, if it's swinging between the corporate and the individual, the fact that God cares about and works in us as the church body and as individuals, right? And it's swung so far away from the individual in that appropriate yes. critique, right? That, right? We, that we forget that it's holding it together. And I think one task of theology is to swing yes. properly in response to needs, right? And ever, an even better task is to hold the whole thing together as wow. a whole, right? Yes. It's, a, it's not more corporate or more individual. It's both. Both are absolutely yes. things God cares about, right? Both are necessary to the Christian life. This really came home for me on this particular question, hearing an African theologian talk once. The line I had sort of heard was, Western culture, individualistic, bad. Other cultures, like many African ones, corporate, good. Yes. And he said, no, no, we need each other. Yeah. The, all corporate, no individual can be bad. Yeah. And you need you need both things. Christian thought is very holistic in that way. It's often yeah. about things. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Well, the, the gospels are clear. Jesus knows our name. Mm -hmm. Jesus knows us intimately. Every and, hair, right? And yeah, he knows, yeah, every hair. And yeah, I, I agree that, that the fear of subjectivism mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. kind of a personal appropriation mm -hmm. of a personal savior has inclined us to be afraid to talk about personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Yeah. Yes. That's... Yeah. And I think I wonder even how that has impacted the practice of the pastor and the practice of the Christian because of some of these pendulum swings mm -hmm. that we are seeing. Mm -hmm. You know, does that impact individual prayer life? You know, mm -hmm. if we think of God as only a corporate God and not a personal God, would the pastor or the Christian be inclined to pray? when it's just them and their home. This is the kind of conversation I love theology to mm -hmm. lead us to. Mm -hmm. um, and hopefully our good practice, right, helps us return to, to scripture, to Christian mm -hmm. teaching, to Christian thought, um, and seek greater faithfulness. It yeah. may be that the practice of prayer is what reveals the Trinitarian nature of God. Hmm. I love that, yeah. So that's that's what we're talking about on the podcast is are our practices coherent, reflective of what we claim we believe? And the reason for the podcast is for us to consider whether or not our practices are coherent with our confessed theology. That's mm -hmm. that's why we're having these conversations. Mm -hmm. And I just don't know that we have given enough by, by virtue of our Western in, intellectualism and scholasticism and mm -hmm, mm -hmm. by virtue of all being descendants of Descartes, thinking our personhood is defined by our thinking. It's a whole, right? Well, Body and soul and correct. mind and spirit and heart and whatever else. Correct. I, I, I just don't think we give enough consideration to how we're practicing our faith 
personally and corporately among our people. Yeah. What are our people learning about God by the way we are practicing our faith? So that's what this is about. Mm-hmm. The ancient church has a slogan, lex orendi, lex credendi, right? The law of prayer is the law of belief. What you pray, and that doesn't just mean yeah, prayer in the sort of obvious sense, but our whole life yeah. is, shapes what you believe. And it should. Yeah. Yeah. It should. And if it's been distorted, we we need help. Bad theology deforms practice, and bad practice deforms theology, you said. I stand about by it. 15 minutes ago. That's the takeaway for me today. Yeah, me too. Me too. And, and again, we've said this over and over. We are going in these spaces. We're having these conversations because we think that so much is at stake. Mm-hmm. Maybe even go as far to say is that the witness of the church is mm-hmm. at stake and mm-hmm. the witness of you know who we are corporately because our practice is visible to a weary world. That's what they see. That's they what they see. They don't see what we think. Right. They see what we practice. That's right. They see what we practice. And so, so much is at stake. And Mark, you're you're a pastor. And Beth, you're a theologian who's helping pastors along. And this is why you have this program at Northern Seminary. And I, you know, maybe this is an appropriate time for you to tell us, like, what? Because you're doing this for a reason. You know, you're you care deeply about the witness of the church. And so tell us, what is this doctor of ministry that you're leading? Yeah, thanks for, for naming it, Tara Beth. So a new demon doctrine of ministry at Northern Seminary in theology. The idea being that theology matters for your life and your life matters for theology. And that many pastors and other Christian leaders want to lean into that and think about how that matters for their calling and their context. And so we'll gather a cohort of people to think about how theology matters for ministry and vice versa. And it will enrich each other. And it's kind of my my heart's thing. So I'm excited about it. If you're interested, I'd love to talk to you. You can uh, contact me at Northern. Fabulous. Fabulous. Thank you for joining us today. Mm -hmm. We were intending on talking about incarnation, but we wanted to have this conversation first. The next podcast, we're going to continue the conversation about incarnation with Dr. Beth Felker-Jones. And we're going to be asking the question, well, just how human was Jesus after all? And what difference does that make? Hmm. So thank you for joining us today. Thank you so much for joining us at the Pastor's Table with Dr. Beth Felker-Jones, where we have had such rich conversation. And, you know, I'm a pastor. Yes, I've been to seminary, but I still always have questions. When we have conversations like this, I'm, I find myself sometimes left wanting. I want to know more. I want to engage deeper. And some of you might be in that same place. You might want to join the discussion. Maybe you have questions. We invite you to visit thepastorstable.com. We've already gotten so many responses and we read all of those. And your responses and your questions help shape the conversations that we want to have at the pastor's table. And so we hope that you will engage in discussion and conversation with us and join us at the table. And hey, if this podcast has meant something to you and you want to engage further, subscribe and maybe share it with a friend or two. Our desire is that your ministry be blessed through this by our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And you are able to appreciate well the gift that God's calling is to you.